All right, so our message today is called Living Sacrifices. So if you have a Bible, flip to Romans 12. We are back in Romans. And uh, I'm going to read that passage and then pray, and then we'll sort of dig in. And, and uh, it's a refreshing passage as I work through it this week. Um, I, I think you'll find it to be a blessing, just what Paul says here. Romans chapter 12, 1 through 13. These are the words of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. In the, the one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes, in generosity. The one who leads, with zeal. The one who does, does acts of mercy, with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Cons uh, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and gracious God, we have gathered together like this to worship and serve you. We are grateful for your son's work to redeem us and draw us near to your throne. Father, we ask that your spirit would teach us this morning how to be the living sacrifices we have been called to be. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, after a fairly large break of the book of Romans, we're, we're finally back. And you might recall, if you're familiar with what we were talking about quite literally months ago, but the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans are fairly dense when it comes to theological concepts very theologically driven. It's one of Paul's most theologically driven letters. But oftentimes, um, pastors and theologians will speak of the first 11 chapters as being just sort of theological. And, and then, of course, the rest of the book, chapters 12 through 16, are, are just practical tips. And it does seem that way. Uh, Paul, in this chapter, isn't going to talk about the doctrine of justification by faith alone. He doesn't really go into that at all. Instead, he's talking about love service of one another, how we're all members of the body of Christ, how we're supposed to function, how we're supposed to use our gifts, uh, and so on. But uh, we would be remiss to, to assume that theology and practice are disjointed and disconnected from one another. All theology is practical and all practice is theological. So know that. All theology is practical and all practice is theological. So we can distinguish between the two, but we should never um, separate the two. We shouldn't separate the two. So in one sense, Paul is going to tell us what it is, is to be believed 
And, uh, and then he's also going to tell us, well, what we must do, credenda and agenda. That was a, a well-known magazine years ago. What, what is to be believed, and then what, is, what are we supposed to do? But those things, of course, are obviously interwoven throughout the entire letter. So, for example, Paul starts out of the gate in Romans, if you remember, in Romans 1, expounding on the gospel. That is, the good news of Christ's death and resurrection. And not just his death and resurrection, by the way, but his ascension to the throne as king and lord. So this is, here's a theological point I don't want you to miss because he references it right in the first few verses of Romans 1. It was the resurrection of Christ, that's his coronation, that marked Jesus out as God's son and thus the world's rightful lord. So that's why Easter matters, Resurrection Sunday matters. That's why every Sunday in one sense is a a Resurrection Sunday. That's why the early church started meeting on Sunday to celebrate the fact that Christ was declared king. His resurrection means that he is God's son and he is the world's Lord. That's what it means. That's what we declare. So this unveiling of the righteousness of God, that is God's saving justice, properly understood, has certain ramifications for how we, we are the now justified people in Christ right now. That theology teaches us how to live. It tells us what's right and good. And so here we are 2,000 years later confessing the same thing that the early church did, confessing the same thing that this group, fledgling group, we might say, of Christians in Rome in the first century, we, we say the same thing they said. And what do they say? Jesus is Lord. That's the content of the gospel. Jesus Christ is Lord. So how then shall we live? That's the question. Jesus is Lord. Great. How then shall we live? Now, remember that Paul, he says back in Romans 1, that the great problem of sin, the great problem of sin that has darkened and polluted and twisted the minds of the unregenerate who are being given over in judgment to their lusts is indeed a problem of the mind. If you remember the Romans chapter 1, 18 and on through 31, He says that God has given them over to a debased mind. Do you remember that phrase? He gave them over to a debased mind. Sin, in one sense, is an ethical condition before God. We know that. But one thing it is also is a debasing of the mind, a polluting of the mind, perversion of thoughts, which lead to perversion action, pervert actions, those types, types of things. So here Paul says that the new Christian community paradigm is a whole, whole different ballgame. So I just keep thinking about the pride event in D.C. Lots of debased minds were there. And here we are as people who are called now to have a renewed mind. Christians are to have a renewal of the mind. So there's a certain harmony of the body, the mind, the soul, and the spirit that God gives to his people, that God restores to his people. The very thing that pulls men, women, and children, you too, out of the absolute wreckage of sinfulness and restores the fullness of the image of God in them. That's what the gospel does. As a result of this good news, the gospel that deals with the whole person, Jew and Gentile alike are now summoned to this saving grace in order to think right and act right. So, as best I can summarize this, 
The gospel is the good news of Christ and his lordship. But guess what? That means that now you have to think properly. And when you become a regenerate Christian by the work of the Spirit, when you repent and believe the gospel, your mind is supposed to be different, supposed to change. So ethics, then, is always tied to theology and theology to ethics. You can't take those things away. Now, the next, the next couple of chapters are going to weave together relationships within the church, and that'll be mostly our focus today. And then we're going to come back to it after a brief break in Romans chapter 13. Uh, but then, it, then Paul goes on to talk about the church's relationship to the rest of the world. What is our relationship and obligation to the rest of the world, the rest of humanity, especially the civil magistrate, which is the famous Romans 13 passage? So we'll, we'll get to those in the next couple of weeks. But let's, let's look at our passage. If you have a Bible, just follow along. And um, we're going to kind of walk through it. I'm just going to make some exegetical comments, and then we'll sort of pull it out, pull out the application from there. So Paul writes in verses 1 and 2. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy, mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual... By the way, that word is not pneuma in Greek, like we would call the Holy Spirit, halios pneuma. It's actually a different word. It means logical or rational. So it's your, when he says spiritual, we usually think of quiet time with Jesus or Sunday morning church or when I'm in my prayer closet. We, we sort of relegate spiritual to that. But for Paul, spiritual simply means the domain of Christ and his authority. Where, where we are enspirited by the Holy Spirit. So you, you've all heard this verse. It's a famous verse. But we present our bodies as a living sacrifice. That's your spiritual worship. That's the logical worship that you give to God. That's the rational worship that you're supposed to do with your mind. So he says, do not be conformed to this world. Don't be conformed to the pattern of wickedness, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So based on the previous doctrines, this is the, he says, I appeal to you therefore, and uh, Paul uses that word a lot because he's talking about things he's just talked about. In light of that, here is what we have going on, uh, especially the mercies of God is so evident in the gospel. Paul urgently tells us to present, that's a religious term, to present ourselves, the entirety of ourselves, as a living sacrifice. So think back to the Old Testament, the, the ceremonial and cultic practices of the tabernacle and the temple and how there was supposed to be certain arrangement to the, the worship of God's people, the brazen altar out in the, in the, in the I'm just think of the tabernacle, but sort of outside of the main tent of meeting, um, you, you also had the show, the showbread, and the and the and the light, the candles, and you had all these symbols of worship that point to the gospel. But one of the things that was there, obviously, was the sacrificial system. So all of those symbols in the Old Testament point to this moment now, where we, the people of God, act out worship with the entirety of our bodies. That's what he's telling us to do: to present, like you would present your gift to God. Our lives are one of presentation presenting ourselves to the glory of God in obedience. So the, the sacrificial bulls, the sacrificial goats, you know, just read the first several chapters of Leviticus, lots of offerings, the burnt offering and so on. 
All of that points to here. So the bedrock of Christian obedience stems from the fact that the people of God who are now in Christ are also indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So this means as little temples, that's what you all of us are, little temples, we are carrying the Shekinah glory of God, the presence of God, that is the Spirit of God in us. And because of that, we now worship God in faithfulness that can only come about because of the mercy and grace of God. None of us worship the Lord because we're awesome. We're just great. And we're so smart and good-natured, we're just going to worship God based on that. No. Paul says it's by the mercy of God. Now this very Jewish language, as I said, goes back to the, harkens back to the temple sacrifices. The temple sacrifices were very much a real physical sacrifice. You would presumably have your offering on a leash, trudging it right up to the tabernacle or the temple to then be dealt with by the high priest. And God expects the same for his newly fashioned people. Instead of, of, of an animal being trundled along and brought along, losing its life in a ritual slaughtering, instead of that, we humans are to live and function within the world of space and time, putting forth our bodies and our minds, presenting as obedient sacrificial offerings. So we died with Christ. We now live with him. And, and as a result of that ongoing sacrifice, we know it's a living and a breathing one. Your life is a sacrifice to God. It's a living one, though, too. So it's not a life of private, spiritual-only retreatism. Oh, just, just preach the gospel. I'm going to go over here in the corner and hide. It's not one of that. That's not what God has called us to. It's actually a life of meaningful service. Meaningful service in every area of life. So instead of an altar in the temple somewhere in the Middle East... All of life is now an altar upon which you climb and upon which you lay down your life. So your relationships, your calling, your job, it's an altar. You climb up on that altar and you lay down your life for it. That's your logical spiritual worship. So work, rest, the bedtime, the dinner table, all of it is an altar. So you go there and you die in repentance so that you can live in obedience. Remember what Jesus said, only those who lose their life will gain it. Now, Paul assumes that conformity will happen. You can't serve two masters, right? Loving one inherently means hating the other. So either you will be conformed to the world and love the world and thus hate Christ, or you will be transformed and you will love Christ and you will hate the world. And by the way, world has several meanings in the Greek, cosmos, um, here we're talking about the, a system of evil that is bent on trying to subvert Christ. That's the world we're supposed to hate. Now, the new humanity Christ has given is not a patch job. Okay, Jesus didn't put a Band-Aid on your sin-plagued soul and said, go on, you'll figure it out, walk it off. You know, you scrape your knee and just, just get up and walk it off. That's not what he did. It's not a patch job. When Jesus changes us, he changes us. He transforms everything. He transforms your heart. He transforms your family. And that spills out into the world and is supposed to transform the world. But as such, we cannot lend ourselves out to the world. Think about lending. Lending money. Think about lending yourself. Every time you lend yourself to the world, 
It's eating away at you. You're actually suppressing the righteousness of God inside of you, in you, through the Spirit. So we're supposed to be transformed in the mind how we think. So Paul's, what Paul means here is, instead of being molded and shaped by the world, our minds are molded and shaped by the mercy of God so that we can choose to live one way, the way of the law of God, and not another, the way of the world. I saw a meme this week. Of course I did. How many did you see this week? Um, and it was this picture of a guy, I think with a kid and uh, someone, of course they had the mask on, and uh, they were talking about school and how if you don't put your kids in the public school system, they won't conform, they won't conform to the rest of society. And the guy's like, exactly. <laughs> so it's that idea that Paul's getting at here in this text. So he literally says, stop being fashioned by the world. Stop being fashioned and molded and, and put inside what the world tells you to be. So regeneration means reversal. Regeneration means reversal. It's a different way of thinking. It's a different way of feeling and living. Instead of having the unfit mind of Romans 128, we have a renewed and a matured mind. So mature minds, you might ask, what are they? Well, they're minds that discern the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect, he says in verse 2. So mature minds are unsullied by life in this world. Presenting your body to Christ means that the mind of Christ is being pressed upon us rather than our minds being pressed upon by the world. So when we think differently, we see differently. When we see differently, we act differently, which is what Paul sets up for us next. Look at verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Speaking of seeing, the point isn't what you see, though that is important. Am I looking to Christ or am I looking to the world? That idea. It's not just what you see. The worship and the obedience we provide by having a renewed mind and seeing things differently is important and it does please God. By the way, Many, many of you may be, be thinking this. Um, it's a struggle I think a lot of Christians have, but you can actually please God in your obedience. Like he is, as a father, pleased when you're in prayer, right? When you're humbled, when you, when you um, don't vent your spirit, as Proverbs says not to do, but instead you, you hold it back, right? When you exhibit those characteristics, God is pleased. He is very much pleased. So it's something we can do. But the point, however, here is the way in which we see and interact with the world, with one another. True maturation demands sobriety of thought. True maturation demands sobriety. The humble man knows that he's not as humble as he should be. It's like, you know, I got a trophy at home. It says most humble man ever and missed the point. The humble person knows that there's more humility to go after. Same thing with holiness. The holy person knows that there's always more sin and temptation to guard against. There's always more to fight against. The thinker who has a renewed mind is supposed to think with sober judgment. Sober judgment of himself is what guides his life. So we're not supposed to posture ourselves with one another in such a way as to think more highly than ourselves than we really ought to. That's a clear and present danger for everyone. A well-trained mind is a disciplined mind, and this is a requirement for Christianity. 
So when you think about not thinking more highly of yourself than you ought, think of it in these terms. Self-opinion shouldn't be a false and self-aggrandizing. You shouldn't posture yourself up like, like I'm greater. You know, hyperbole is your best friend. Nor, though, should it be inappropriately self-deprecating. Don't puff yourself up, but don't trash yourself either. Sober judgment, he says. The measure of faith, according to the measure of faith. He isn't talking about how some of you have five gallons of faith and others you're stuck with 32 ounces of faith. Sorry, good luck. He's not, people misread this text. It's not what he's saying. Rather, the measure is the standard of faith, the perfect standard of faith. So a person of faith is a person of sober judgment of himself first. So she's not quick to want to elevate herself through hyperbole and exaggeration, nor is she quick to posture a false humility. Rather, she exudes a confidence that Christ is her king and what he thinks matters more than the opinions of others. Sober judgment means you have to have a standard. The standard is faith. The standard is Christ. Look at verse 4 and 5. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and all individually members of one another. So living by the standards, we might say, of holy sobriety and sound judgment is situated inside the context of true Christian community. We are each an organ or a function of the collective body of Christ. That was C.S. Lewis's language in The Weight of Glory. Um, we think of members as like a transaction where you're a member of a club or a member of, you know, uh, uh, Sam's Club or something. Uh, it's not that. It's actually the, like he's talking about organs and functions of a body. So we all have a different, we're all different organs or different functions. We have the same loyalty. We have the same fidelity to, to King Jesus. But we don't always all have the same task. So ladies, you're particularly well-suited to have children. Men are not, despite statements to the contrary um, lately. So think of it this way, and this is from what Amy read in 1 Corinthians 12 there, but the liver shouldn't try to be the heart, and the brain shouldn't try to filter blood like the kidney. Don't, don't be what you're not. Be what you are. The human body works best when all the pathways, all the functions, and the lines of communication, what we call the neurological system, for example, when they're all doing their jobs effectively and efficiently. So this is a division of labor in, in the church. There's a division of labor. Soberly, we should soberly know who Christ has made you to be and do it. Who has Christ made you to be and do it? If your hands, be the hands. If you're an arm or a shoulder, be that. If you're a liver, do that. That's your task. And don't shy away from it. He's gonna go on in a minute. Embrace it. Don't go away from it. So there's no life outside of Christ. We already know that. Just like an arm can't function when it's severed from the body. It just doesn't work that way. It's, it's gone. Therefore, depend on him and grow in relation to the other members. Look at verses 6 through 8. <clears throat> Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes or is a giver in generosity. Lord loves a cheerful giver, right? The one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with 
cheerfulness. So here we have some of the gifts that God gives to his people. Others are listed in other places. But some prophesy. Some, that is, they expound on the truth of Scripture. They set forth God's law, word, in a particular context. I think of brothers like Matt Wiersema, who's he's out, he's prophesying. He's taking the law and the word of God, and he's in, his, in, in that moment, in that context, he's putting it forth. Prophecy isn't telling what's going to happen in the future primarily. That, that's not even how the Old Testament prophets functioned primarily. They were lawsuit givers. They preached the lawsuit of God's covenant sanctions. That was their main task. So if you're going to do it, do it in accordance to, to the faith and to the doctrines of the word of God. If, if, if service is your gift, some of you just, you'll just serve. And that's your gift. You love it. You don't, you're not a, you, you don't want to be um, up front doing anything. You would rather just humbly serve in those areas behind the scenes, so to speak. If that's the case, then, then you should do that. By all means, minister and serve. The deacons come to mind in that regard. Teachers should teach the word of God. He who exhorts should keep encouraging others. That's what exhortation really means, is you're, you're giving an encouragement to someone. Givers should give generously. Leaders should rule in a state of zeal and diligence, and the merciful should be cheerful about it, not stodgy. In other words, don't feign obedience in your life. Don't fake it. Act accordingly to the grace of God. And frankly, pull yourself out like a drink offering. Paul refers to this in the book of Philippians, the libation offering. He pours himself out on the altar. That's, that's us expending our lives in service of other people. So remember, we're living sacrifices. And this is key. Don't worry about what other people are doing or not doing. This is every Christian community I've ever been a part of. Don't worry about what other people are doing or not doing. Concern yourself with what you are supposed to be doing. See the need, meet the need, keep your mouth quiet. That's Paul's admonition. See, what he's getting at is that the community of the Messiah, we are the true humanity on earth. We are the ones who exhibit and explain what humanity is supposed to be. And notice, though, that he's not, he's criticizing, I think, underhandedly, the Roman state. The state can't forgive sin and heal the mind as much as it tries. And it can't set you on the path towards love and self-sacrifice. It cannot do that. Only the people of God to it. And the state, we're going to get to this in Romans 13 because he's leading us to that. The state, um, <laughs> it can only harm. And what I mean is, especially when it doesn't harm the way it's supposed to do, that is when it punishes good instead of evil. But that, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. Verse 9. He says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. That Greek word is Philadelphia there. Philadelphia literally phylos and adelphos, two Greek words, smash them together, you get brotherly love. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Literally, the Greek says love genuine. Two words, just a command. Love Genuine. Let it be genuine. Love isn't to be hypocritical or counterfeit, sort of a fakery, right? It's supposed to be the real thing. So you have to check yourself and to see what exactly is motivating you. Am I like playing chess here and I'm going to do this over here with them because I want them to do this, right? And you're sort of like, we play these chess games with people. He says, no, knock it off. This is genuine love that's supposed to be taking place. If it's gossip, 
We know that it's saying something about someone else that you would never say to their face. If it's flattery, you're saying something encouraging to their face that you would never say behind their back. We have to guard against both things. Either way, genuine love is far from your heart if that's what you're doing. See, love needs to be accurate. It needs to be healthy. And that can only come from renewed minds and renewed hearts that are plagued by the love of God. Evil, he says, we're to abhor. Evil is to be the putrid and paltry thing that it is. Evil should be utterly repulsive to us. We should find it disgusting and despicable. Paul says in Ephesians to expose evil, to expose the darkness. And of course, the other side of the coin means that we're to cling and enjoin ourselves to that which is good. There's no neutrality. So Philadelphia, brotherly love, is the logical step. If it's good, then it's love. Again, the whole I pick on this all the time but because it really irks me, but the love is love thing. No, love is law, but actually love is good too. If it's, if it's good, it's loving. If it's not, it's not. So it's your job to know the difference and your job to participate in it accordingly. So love one another as brothers and sisters. Love one another as the brothers and sisters that we are. Be swift to giving time and honor to them. Verse 11, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Make it a point to repent of laziness when dealing with your brother or sister and instead get off the couch and be swift to serve them. And know that when you're serving them, you're also serving the Lord. 12 and 13, rejoice in hope. Just firing these commands away. I love it. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Listen, a life marked by Jesus and his gospel is a life that rejoices at the prospect of hope in every circumstance. It's a life that's patient when things are bad. And it's also a life that is constant in prayer. And never saying that you'll get to it when you feel like it. I'll get to that when I feel like it. See, this is what it looks like to love, to contribute to the needs of God's people, to opening up your home to the needy, to be, being genuine all the way through all of it. All of this is to be measured by faith and truth and not your subjective desires, not your subjective feelings, which are oftentimes just erroneous. I want to highlight a few things from this passage. <clears throat> Christian community can be very difficult. Um, it just can be. Any church, I'm sure you all could speak to that. Any church community you've been a part of, there is difficulty. There's sometimes trouble. But the reason that it's difficult oftentimes, and James tells us this as well, but the reason it's difficult is because we, when we get together and we participate in life like this, we all have conflicting desires. We all have con conflicting desires. We may have differences of opinion on things that really don't matter. You know, some of you like to mow your lawn a certain way, and I show up and I think it's repulsive. <laughs> How could you dare mow your lawn that way? I, we have con we, you may have differences of opinion on those things. And on those types of things, just serve and love the other, and don't complain about the lawn. Great, now i got to mow my new lawn, and some of you are going to come judge me. <laughs> But it's difficult because we have, you know, different, different desires. You know, I'd like to take a meal to that person, but I don't know if I have the time instead of getting off social media and making time, right? 
I'd love to financially give to that ministry effort, but right now we're tight on money as, as you sip your Starbucks and wait for your next delivery, all the while failing to tithe and budget and be financially sober. Things are really bad. I guess if it's, be, it's, it's best if we just sort of hunker down and let people fend for themselves instead of fighting for the abolition of abortion or preaching Christ to the people that are out there, so on. Or, or this is a good one. This person has a lot going on in their life, but I'm just going to have to insist that what I have is more important. Instead of showing deference to the other and being a good listener and being quick to be sensitive to what other people may be going through, that sort of thing. And on and on we could go. The basic issue, as Paul sees it, is predicated on the opening sentence, presenting ourselves a certain way. He's already told us not to present ourselves one way. Remember in Romans 6, he said, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. He's already gone over this. In the middle of the deep theology, he's already told us this. And he goes on to say that this is possible because sin no longer has dominion over you. We're no longer under the condemnation of the law. We are under the grace of Christ. So presentation is what's at stake because all men and women present. Everyone's presenting. Pride Festival, lots of presentations there. But everybody's presenting something. They, everyone's putting forth their actual bodies towards something as an act of sacrifice. The unregenerate put their efforts in the person and their debased minds into twisting sexuality and twisting the family unit and, and twisting political uh, pot for power, political means for power and so on. They contort things like justice and jurisprudence and so on. But it's not to be this way for the Christian church. What, we have what we need in Christ, so therefore, that is, based on the aforementioned magnificent doctrines, present your life as a living sacrifice. And as I mentioned before, all of life is an altar on which you climb in order to lay yourself down in submission to the will of God. Think, think Abraham and Isaac and that, in, the, in the book of Genesis. See, the new Christian community, the new humanity that Christ has formed is called to inveterately, that is habitually and constantly, lay our lives down for the sake of others. It's called a living sacrifice for a reason. You're not to present yourselves as a living whenever it's convenient. Living sacrifice. Like the aroma of the burnt offering in the temple that ascended to the heavens. So our daily dying to self and living unto righteousness, our presenting, becomes a sweet aroma to God. It pleases him. It pleases him when you stop, when you get the text that's sent out daily for people in our church to pray for. It pleases God when you stop in that moment and ask God's blessing on them. It pleases God when you see a need and you meet it. It pleases God when someone you know is feeling down and depressed and you send them encouragement. Those things please God. He loves it. So in, in what ways is God pleased? Well, he says humility, right? Not thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. Why shouldn't we think higher of ourselves than we ought? Well, because boasting in anything other than Christ gives way to pride and destruction. What else pleases God? Well, when, people, when the people of God function like the people of God, 
That is, when they use their gifts, the gifts that God has given them, to serve the people of God. In, in serving the people of God, we serve the Lord himself. And can I just say something here as it pertains to our church? There is always more room for us to utilize our gifts and to serve one another. There's just always more room for that. Paul essentially says here in verse 10 to race each other in honoring one another. He says to outdo one another. It's like, <laughs> it's almost like a competition, but there's no rewards and there's no recognition. So suck it up, right? You don't get like a star. And you can pin it on you. Oh, look, at, I served someone today. I voted to, you know. <laughs> no, just do it. <laughs> or in the case of voting, maybe not. But, but it's, it's better that way. Don't play favorites, showing honor to some and not others. He says give honor to everyone. Don't just, don't, there's no favorites in the kingdom of Christ. It's easy to get comfortable with the same set of people. It's hard to stretch yourself in getting to know others. But just because it's hard doesn't mean that we shouldn't. We should. We're supposed to outdo each other, not just some. It's a sort of a collective participation in this thing. How else can we please God and discern what is good and acceptable and perfect? Well, one that jumps out here has to do with the genuineness of our love. He says, let love be genuine. We Christians are notorious for fakery. And don't get me wrong, the world is fake too. It's just more palpable for us in the church because we have the mirror of the law of God, which shows us in great detail how not genuine we can be sometimes. But listen, if you want your love to be genuine, and this is a command, a law from God, love genuinely. It's an order from King Jesus. If you want it to be genuine, then it's going to have to be measured by faith, Measured by the truth of the word of God. The moment that it's measured by something else, like one-upmanship or rivalry or dissension in a community, it's the moment it's gone. It could be your own preferences. That's the moment division. That's the moment discord. That's the moment devouring one another comes into a community. So don't play games with people. Present yourselves as a living sacrifice devoted to a genuine love that hates evil and expends itself in serving others. That's the point here. But don't play games. It, <laughs> the surest way that you know you're playing a game is if you're trying to score points, right? That's how you know. If you're trying to score points on someone else, you're playing a game. You're genuine, your love is not genuine. That's how you know. Don't try to score the social status points. Don't try to outdo one another in showing honor because you're, you're trying to be liked in the eyes of others. Don't show brotherly love because you're secretly jealous for that, of that person for the way they look, the way they dress, the way they live their lives, so on and so forth. If you don't want to play games, then stop trying to score points. And nothing, I mean nothing, undermines a community like disingenuous flattery and malevolent gossip. There is nothing more destructive to relationship than uncongenial idols that are being propped up in the minds of uncongenial friends. Love, if it is to be the living sacrifice of love that we are presenting, it has to be real. But how can it be real? This is why knowing Romans 1 through 11 is so important. The only way it can be real, and I want you to listen carefully to this, the only way it can be real Indeed, the only way that you can actually present yourself as a living sacrifice and, and not a living convenience machine, the only way that can happen is by actually knowing Christ, who he is, 
what he's done. And then living in light of this. And here's what I mean. Don't ever try to add a footnote to the finished work of Christ. Don't do it. Footnotes include, yeah, Jesus died for my sins, but I just can't ever forgive them because of blank. Or I know I'm no longer condemned. I know Romans 8.1. I know it by heart. But there's no possible way Christ could ever love me, not after what I did. Sure, my love is supposed to be genuine, but theirs is not, so I, can let, I, I can't let mine be genuine. They don't deserve it. That's called point scoring. See, all of this is adding a footnote to the cross that does not belong there. The formula is simple. Jesus plus nothing. That's the formula. And the reason you can be a living sacrifice, devoting yourself to serving each other with, with gifts, hating evil, loving what is good, outdoing one another and, and showing honor and respect, dis, dispensing encouragement for the education of the saints, and so on, the reason you can do that is because Christ died for your sin and he now rules as your Lord. And we've already seen the problem of Romans 1 and 3, the sin problem. But we've also seen how Jesus, the second Adam, has taken care of it. He's abolished death. He's abolished guilt. He's buried your guilt. And we've seen that we are no longer condemned but alive to Christ and his righteousness. We've seen in Romans the marvelous work of grace and God's election. It's all here. It's all there for us. That is the thing that propels us into laying our lives down for the sake of others. And I submit to you in closing that if you have a hard time laying down your desires in service of others, then you have yet to grasp how Jesus has laid down his life in service of you. Bottom line. Believe it, church, and then do it. Let's pray. Father, we give you this time today. We thank, and are thankful that we could uh, come together, assemble as your people uh, to, to pray, to sing, to look at your word, to fellowship, to exhort and encourage one another. And I do pray that that would be prevalent among us, um, that, that genuine love and service and self-sacrifice would be a mark of our church. So would you convict us of sin wherever it needs to be? Show us where we're not being consistent. Show us the times when we're thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. Show us when we're not actually trying to outdo one another and showing honor. May your Holy Spirit reveal that to us so that we can thrive for your kingdom. So we ask your blessing on our meal, on, on our Eucharist meal, and also our fellowship meal. Father, you have loved us graciously. So help us to know it and believe it, and then follow that pattern. In Christ's name I pray, amen. amen.